This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we chat with Andy Banta and Josh Atwell about B-Balls and the death of the specialized admin. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. In the studio with me today is Sully. Hello. Hi. Long time no see. It's been like... It's been 10 minutes. Yeah, since I walked by your cube. You're like, hey, it's time to record. You actually didn't do that. That didn't happen. No, I was was meeting with a product manager. Were you? Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. I'm excited for you. (sighs) Product managers. All right. Uh, So today... We're going to uh, talk to uh, a couple of our friends with NetApp Solidifier. Uh, one of them is the storage janitor himself, Mr. Andy Banta. Hi, Andy. Hey, Justin. Hey, Sully. How are things? Good. Yourself? I'm doing great. Excellent. So, uh, Andy Banta, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at NetApp and uh, how we can reach you on social media? I, I am the storage janitor, but I'm not in the storage closet with you guys today. Uh, actually, I, I'm part of the tech solutions team, um, principal virtualization architect for uh, NetApp SolidFire. Uh, at SolidFire, I've been working on VVOLS development and most, more recently uh, the tech solutions side of VVOLS. Uh, previously, I had a long and varied history at, uh, at other places like VMware and, and Sun. Okay, and if we wanted to get in touch with you on social media, how would we do that? Oh, of course, you can find me at Andy Banta on Twitter. How long did it take uh, you to think of that social media handle? It took me days. That's good. Days and days. It took me like the day or two between the time I heard about Twitter and I decided, yeah, I actually wanted to get myself a handle. There you are. There you are. All right. Uh, also on the phone with us today from NetApp Solifier is uh, the Mr. Developer Advocacy himself, Josh Atwell. Hi. Him again? <laughs> They'll let anybody on this podcast more than once. How's it going, guys? This is true. He's a, he's one of the few people to actually accept our invitations. Usually, everybody ignores us. Well, at least you stopped recording me surreptitiously. <laughs> That's true. So, Josh, uh, if you could give us a little background in what you do here and how to reach you on social media. Sure. Uh, I'm Josh Atwell. I'm a developer advocate for NetApp, and I serve two primary roles uh, in that capacity. Uh, externally, I work with our customers, partners, uh, and uh, internal folks on on building out a developer community, which we call the pub, and getting them connected to the right resources to learn how to utilize the technologies that we're building. And then internally, I'm within the NGDC marketing group, so I'm, I'm helping our marketing organization um, you know, better uh, align these integrations and get them to the right audience and make sure that people can find them when they need to. So very complimentary roles there. Okay, so uh, NGDC kind of leads us into what we're going to talk about today. So let's talk about what NGDC is at a very high level. Uh, so NGDC uh, stands for Next Generation Data Center, and the focus there is on new mechanisms, new frameworks for uh, building out and delivering the requirements for 
you know, tomorrow's data centers. Uh, so the you know, unique constructs, um, you know, next generation frameworks for architectures uh, and consumption models. Excellent. And uh, so, like I said, it leads us into what we're talking about today. And to lead us into that further, uh, let's talk to Andy Banta. So Andy Banta likes to, likes to go to trade shows and he likes to carry around a tombstone. Um, that's right. I have my uh, my little storage admin tombstone that made out of styrofoam that's shown up with me at uh, both VMworld and Insight. Yeah, he's not only so, the storage janitor; he's also the storage undertaker. Um, that's right. <laughs> you know, Josh and I have actually talked about uh, the death of specialized admin at both VMworld and Insight in the past, but uh, I think this is the first time we've actually been on the podcast together. So this is going to be like your chance to have the tech on top. Dumpster fire edition. <laughs> there we go. So uh, you, you mentioned the death of the specialized admin, and let's let's dive into that a little bit. So when you say that, um, you're not actually implying that we, we should die, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, no, no, not you personally. No, the the whole idea is that, uh, especially with the next generation data center, uh, you really don't need as many people to manage your infrastructure, and the idea that you actually have separate admins for doing things like servers and storage and networking and virtualization and all these other things, that's that's kind of being condensed. In fact, I, I think Josh actually came up with one of the best analogies of uh, looking for administrators with, uh, with T-shaped skill sets where they actually have a broad knowledge with depth in one particular area. So the way I've, I've kind of summed this up is uh, O-shaped people with T-shaped skill sets. So, so can we expand a little bit on NGDC, right? And I, I'm a visual thinker, right? Um, so what, what would be the difference between a traditional data center and the skill sets associated with that and a next generation data center and the skill sets associated with that? Because we can say that, you know, the, the, there is no longer a need for a specialized administrator, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't still need administrators, right? The skill set is just evolving. That's true. And, and so actually just to, to draw a couple of distinctions, let, let's talk about the data, the way the data centers themselves are, are set up. Uh, it, in, in traditional or, or legacy data centers, you typically had, um, you know, single tenants or, or a bunch of tenants that were, weren't actually sharing any resources. Uh, the, the workloads were fairly isolated. Um, you would typically, you know, go out and buy a server with a piece of storage to work with it with, very particular networking configurations. Uh, you would typically go out and you know get it in in a, a certain provision capacity to start with, and uh, it would be intended just be for a particular project and, and very uh, manually uh, administered. And the the whole idea with the next generation data center is that you you don't end up with any siloed workloads anymore. You have uh, multiple tenants. Uh, with uh, mixed workloads running in your data center, uh, that would be you know both computer compute storage and networking. Um, you, you typically would want all of the infrastructure to be shared. You don't want to go out and have to buy a particular piece of hardware for one project that only gets used for that one project. Um, you, you pretty much want to set it up so uh, people can get the resources as they want them. So it would be resources on demand. Uh, compute, memory, storage, networking, anything that you need. And uh, you you want to be able to provision this quickly uh, because you're, typically your customers are going to say, oh, I need this and I, I want to do something with this for a couple of days. They might not even need it after that. Um, and uh, 
one of the one of the reasons why we talk about the death of the specialized storage admin in this type of configuration is if you actually have a bunch of different specialized admins that need to go out and coordinate all of these resource efforts to try to set everything up, your your data center is not going to be as agile and, and as uh, able to accommodate the demands of the various different customers as if you can consolidate this down into a fewer number of administrators and each one of the administrators can do every all of the tasks end-to-end that they need to. I think the way that uh, you know, we as an industry need to start looking at our data centers is that you know, as we would deploy out data centers and deploy out the technology to support the workloads that were going out there, um, you know, we would have that architecture that we would develop and deploy. And that architecture, for the most part, would be fairly static through, through the life cycle uh, of that equipment. And, you know, we would iterate periodically, you know, every other year, you would re- reevaluate based on changing technologies and changing needs. Um, I think today what we're running into is that the, the needs are so dynamic that the infrastructure and what we're delivering for platforms have to be significantly, significantly more dynamic and able to modify on demand with minimal effort on an administrative standpoint and be able to deliver the resources needed for, you know, especially these next generation workloads. Uh, and I do want to clarify one thing that, that Andy mentioned earlier, the T-shaped person. I did not come up with that, but I think I may have introduced it internally, um, that concept. So I just anybody listening want to make sure it's clear. I didn't you know, invent that. So, okay. so I first heard about it from Josh. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> it, so is simply being virtualized a next generation data center? No, no, absolutely not. So, I mean, actually, there are a couple other things that went into the, the making of the next generation data center. And, and um, an awful lot of it just has to do with the, the evolution of, uh, of what you actually have in your data center, where, where architectures are actually becoming easier to manage. Um, and that's not just internal inside the machine architectures, but that's actually the layout of your data center is becoming easier to manage as well. Um, but not to mention that, that hardware is actually becoming commoditized as well. Uh, so it's the, the whole idea that uh, that you actually have a lot of different things to manage inside your data center is going away. It's, I mean, how many people actually know what a SCSI terminator is anymore? Uh, you go back a dozen years and that was something that a storage admin needed to know how to use and have plenty of on supply so they could go out and, and set up their storage. And you just, you don't have this, this type of nitty gritty little hardware stuff that you need to, to set up all the time. And you don't have uh, 45 different protocols that you need to understand and have different cables for it's uh, you know, the modern data, the next generation data center, uh, it runs on Ethernet cables. Because of this, actually, it, it's mostly software is defining what the, the next generation data center is. So how does that definition, how does that vision compare to, for example, VMware's software-defined data center and how they uh, craft that that vision and how it should look for um, these organizations in the future? Yeah, I, I don't think that software-defined data center and next generation data center are uh, at opposite goals. I mean, they're, they're largely overlapping definitions in my, uh, in my take on it. That's, uh, you know, an awful lot of things in the next generation data center are software defined. That's, 
it's a matter of what tools or what um, what capabilities you've built into the data center in software, not what you've done in hardware. Uh, yeah, and I, I think one important element of that is that the infrastructure, the hardware itself, is becoming more of an enabler in the next generation data center, whereas more, more technology is being provided that can increase the capabilities of what that software-defined layer does. Okay, so if a software-defined layer needs to change the infrastructure, you know, that infrastructure components itself are now you know, in a position to where they can accommodate that request to further um, you know, uh, simplify you know, that, that process. Because, of course, we, we see a lot of technology that is just trying to be a software abstract layer that obfuscates like, that connection to, to the infrastructure. But you know, as, as we're aware, being an infrastructure company uh, and you know, storage being something that is a non-ephemeral thing, it has to be very persistent. Uh, being able to move those features and capabilities of the infrastructure up into that software-defined stack, you know, those those are complementary to to Andy's point. They're certainly not at odds. So, so I guess that begs the question then: of is you know OpenStack or you know a, a vRealize stack? Does that then extend beyond a simply virtualized data center and into a a next-generation data center? Um, that's a big part of it. I mean, a couple of things that actually I see as a distinction between simply virtualized and, and the next generation data center is um, the scale, the, the ability to, to have not just, you know, 10 workloads running in your data center, but having hundreds of workloads. Uh, one of the things that you actually need to do to be able to manage that size workload with fewer people is automation. And that's that's... Josh's bailiwick all the way. Uh, he can talk about automation for the next three hours. And the, the other piece of it is um, policy-based uh, provisioning of resources. So that would be uh, being able to set up policies that define the types of uh, virtual platforms or VMs that you have, the types of networking you have, the types of storage you have. Uh, whatever else, being able to do this entirely through policy-based management rather than needing, needing to go in and configure each VM or each LUN or each network connection individually. So uh, those are another two key components of the next generation data center. Basically, uh, the, the ability to provide things as a service. So, uh, and just thinking about the evolution of uh, of Let's say, let's talk about storage for a minute. Uh, the idea that uh, back in the dark ages, the the, mo the thing you worried about most with storage was being making sure it was available and reliable, and you would have a server admin that would make sure that this stuff was available and reliable. And as you moved into virtualization, uh, the whole idea was that you could actually um, do more with less hardware, and you could actually start using commodity components uh, to be able to, to run it and you could use shared storage behind the scenes and you didn't necessarily care as much about the, the storage. You, uh, you gained availability through either replication or various different, uh, um, data protection methods that were maintained by the storage. You know, that's what we as a company are supposed to do. Um, Beyond virtualization, you got kind of into the cloud age, where the, the whole idea was that uh, things would be would be moving faster. You'd be able to go out and provision uh, storage and networking and, and virtualization just 
uh, not even using your own resources out there in the cloud and, and be able to do it on the fly as you needed it. And what we kind of envision as the next generation data store, data center is being able to do all of this as a service. So you can just go out and self-provision whatever you need and, and be able to use it and be able to use it for years or be able to use it for the next three minutes. I mean, the, uh, a big th portion of the next generation data center concept is that not all workloads are these permanent workloads where you're going to build up a server and it's going to be running for years. Um, if you take a look at the test and development organizations of various different companies, and, uh, large portions of NetApp included, they'll very often spin up environments for uh, just a couple of minutes to run through and test a bunch of features, test a bunch of, test a set of things, and then at the end of it, completely wipe the thing out and it will be gone. And that's that's another uh, big concept is the transient workloads, uh, workloads that are are there just for this moment or this day. So we've talked a bit about the underlying infrastructure, right? Where we want to have infrastructure components, so compute, storage, networking, that are able to be consumed, right, through an infrastructure as a service layer, right? They are composable, right, meaning that I can uh -huh. dynamically configure them as needed, you know, when needed, how needed, uh, to to meet the needs of the application, right? And of course, there is that that infrastructure as a service layer on top of there. So w what about the workloads? What about the applications, right? Can I take a platform to application and host it in a, a next generation data center or do I need a platform three application or vice versa? So what, what we're seeing is that a lot of organizations who are adopting next generation data center approaches, um, some of their core desires are to support you know, mode two platform three applications because those applications tend to, you know, as, as Andy put it really well, um, have varying lifespans and different requirements than what we've been accustomed to of just you know, taking a physical x86 server, making it virtualized and then providing better you know, uh, efficiencies around managing it. Um, you know, the new workloads, you know, mode two platform three workloads, they have different constructs, they have different requirements and you know as such there are different expectations uh, but what i'm seeing more and more of is that as organizations are adopting you know these next generation data center requirements and techniques and and components they're very much bridging back and working to move those applications that you know haven't had these needs so they can take advantage of you know the new agility the new capabilities uh, and you know, basically bring those applications more towards the future now i won't pretend that every application is going to be making that jump but if we were be, would have been having a conversation five years ago about whether or not people were going to be abandoning uh, running uh, Exchange on-premises for an offering that Microsoft was providing in the cloud, we would have been a little bit dubious. We would have been kind of excited at the prospect, uh, but at the same time, we may have been hesitant to believe that that would happen in mass. But that's exactly what were happening. So you have this traditional, you know, older mode one application um, that is something that's been a traditional x86 management framework that we dealt with uh, and then it's being converted into something that is uh, you know mode mode three sitting up in the cloud different completely different framework different requirements different management techniques gotcha so ju jumping back to one of the core you know core subjects that we wanted to talk about on this podcast is 
you know, the death of the specialized administrator. So how, how is this transition affecting us, right? Affecting those of us who are banging on keyboards, right? Walking through data centers, looking at blinky lights every day. Well, I mean, it's been affecting us, right? If we look over the last 10 years uh, and you know, use the server administrator, right? When I started in IT, you know, we weren't utilizing virtualization uh, specifically because we didn't necessarily have x86 virtualization. Uh, but I had you know a dozen or so servers that I was responsible for. I knew their firmware versions. I knew their build versions. You know, I, I knew these individual physical systems pretty well. Uh, they, you know, we, we even you know understand their characteristics and how they behave under certain you know scenarios. And you know, I spoke with the application owners or the developer that was responsible for utilizing that system. Uh, my, that role had to evolve. I went from managing a you know a dozen, two dozen systems to managing hundreds of systems to then later managing tens of thousands of systems. Um, what what happened was is that the focus that we have begins to shift. Whereas early on, I was responsible for every, you know, manually dealing with every transaction, every functional component that had to support those applications, to really becoming. Uh, focused on how do I get myself out of that process? And you know, this is really the kind of mindset that we need to see more of because the more that we keep ourselves in the in the in that process and involved with every transaction per se, um, the less you know, real value we're delivering to the company. And knowing knowing this audience, this is kind of a scary prospect. So uh, if if I can just for a minute, I think I can like take some of the fear away. Because if we think about, for instance, like I have a checking account and my checking account has resources in it, never as much as I want it to be, but constantly working on that, right? But I have automated drafts for my mortgage, for some, my mobile phone payment, for um, you know, the lease on my truck, my wife's van, things of that nature, right? They automatically come out every single month. Um, I know exactly what they are, what they should be every month. Then I have a debit card and I make purchases there. We have a checkbook that we pay vendors with, you know, people that work on the yard, you know, clean the house, things of that nature. My wife has a debit card. What I do not do is process and handle every transaction that goes through my checking account. Just like everybody else, I look periodically, usually once a week, every other week, and I identify you know, what transactions has happened, and I focus on finding those outliers, the ones that don't make sense, the ones that I'm not sure what that transaction is. I'm going to investigate that because I know that my AT&T bill is going to look like X. I know that my uh, those checks coming through uh, for certain doctor appointments, I know what those typically look like. And my expertise now is focused on finding something that is out of the norm, getting myself out of each every each and every transaction and focusing on those higher value uh, elements. Right. And that I think that's very true. I think that actually fits in nicely with another concept that I was going to try to pull into this, which is uh, that the resources have been have become so readily available that you, you no longer sit around and worrying about individual resources anymore that you, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago where you actually needed to go out and pay for compute time that you used, and that would be on a single CPU. We're at the point now where uh, compute time is so cheap, storage is so cheap, networking is so cheap, that typically large data centers buy them in pools and then just divvy up the, uh, allocate out the resources of the pool. So 
you don't end up with this idea that you have statically set up uh, individual silos for each application. You have a pool of resources, and that application is going to carve out a chunk of the, the resources and use them. And you, if you have administrators who can simply manage the divvying up of those resources, uh, it, it takes far less effort than actually attempting to go out and build a complete, complete configuration from uh, you know, floor space in the data center up to a complete uh, system that, that, that would run that. And uh, this actually brings up another question that was brought up one other place. Is, uh, does anybody know where the idea of carving out resources came from? It, it seems to be a term that's used universally throughout the industry, and, and nobody has, you know, you, you don't actually have the ability to go in there with a knife and carve them out, but there you are. Yeah, I think the concept there is the, the divvying component, right? I'm going to carve yeah. out some turkey, or I'm going to carve out this space uh, for for this whatever. Right. But yeah, it is, it is kind of a violent description of allocation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, but it, the, the nice thing about working with pools is that you can actually go out and carve out or, or divvy out the amount of resources that you need, and you can make sure that each application is guaranteed to get the resources they need without actually needing to go out and resize uh, anything else in your pool. And it just it makes it simpler to be able to go in and, and, and chunk it out that way rather than needing to go out and purchase hardware from various different places. And uh, to, to Josh's point, uh, the server admin has largely gone away. The data ad database admin has largely gone away. Um, the role of the server admin these days is something that's pretty much done when you order your server. It's it's done through the checkbox form when you're ordering your server. You don't need to go out and buy your server and buy the internal storage for it and buy the cards to go into it and buy the memory that goes into it and be able to cable everything up yourself. Uh, you typically take the thing out of the box, plug a few cables into the back of it and turn it on and you're ready to go. There's there's no no administration that goes into that server other than racking and cabling. So what are these server admins doing then? I mean, what, how are they converting? How are they evolving? Uh, Josh, I imagine... Man, you're going to make me dig out the tombstone. Well, I mean, you know, they've got to be doing something. So Josh is a developer advocate. And I imagine that you have sort of a bridge with some of these server admins and storage admins that are looking to evolve with the changing data center. So how are you doing that, Josh? I, I think the primary mechanism is you know, showing you know, people who are accustomed to the, the way things have been done uh, to understand that, A, you don't have to be this hardcore developer and write tons of code in order to get yourself out of the process as much as possible. Um, you know, the, the big focus for me is looking uh, strategically at you know the work that you do, the amount of energy you spend with yourself in the process of provisioning or making changes, because you know, as as we continue to see organizations increase their demands and expectations of what IT can deliver, the more and more you know, administrators are in that 
path or in the way versus just making sure you know, working more like a plant foreman and ensuring that all the resources going in and resources going out, you know, match up with expectations. You know, the more they're in the way, the, you know, the less valuable they actually become. They become more of a liability rather than a value add. So providing you know, uh, access to tools and capabilities like via the pub, uh, and resources that can help them get themselves out of the way. And then also working with Andy and others, teaching them about policy-based frameworks like storage policy-based management, VVols, Cinder, NetApp, Docker volume plugin, things that they can provide meaningful access to their consumers, their application owners, developers, uh, to you know, execute a lot of the tasks that they need uh, as, as they go without submitting a ticket. So, yeah, that, that actually fits in nicely with a bunch of things that you can actually do with storage policy-based management and virtual volumes in a VMware environment. So, in this case, we can talk about the ability to actually do everything that you might possibly need to just as a virtualization administrator. You don't need a storage admin. Um, you might need some networking, networking expertise just to make sure that you have all the back-end pieces plumbed in, but you certainly don't need... Uh, a server admin or, or anything else. And in this case, a, a virtualization admin can go in through the vCenter uh, vSphere client, go in and, and set up some storage policies and, uh, you know, give the, the policies uh, certain levels or, or certain capabilities, uh, you know, QoS settings, um, snapshot settings, uh, what, what you want the underlying storage to look at look like. And in this case, uh, the underlying storage would have to have the same would have to have capabilities that actually match these policies. Well, if you take a look at a, the NetApp SolidFire product, we actually have it set up. So if you just set up the policies in your vSphere client, the under uh, the underlying storage will actually pick up those capabilities automatically when you attempt to apply those policies. So you don't actually need to do any configuration whatsoever on the underlying storage. So in this case, the vSphere admin can go in and set the policies they want for the storage that's associated with uh, with a, a particular VM. Um, they can set up various different storage containers on the underlying storage, so you can actually have multiple tenants on the same storage system that are each identified by different data stores from the VMware perspective and different accounts from the storage perspective, again, entirely through the vSphere client. Uh, you can go in and you can create virtual machines, and those virtual machines can have separate virtual disks with separate policies. So say you want to, you're trying to set up a database server, you could actually create a VM that actually has three separate disks, three separate virtual disks. One of those virtual disks would be for the OS, one of those virtual disks could be for the database itself, and one of those virtual disks could be for the log disk. And you can actually set separate policies for each one of them. So for like an OS disk, you probably want to make sure that it gets a certain number of IOPS just so your OS can keep running all the time. But it probably doesn't need a very high QoS setting for maximum IOPS, so you can set that a little bit lower. Your database disk probably needs fairly good both minimum and uh, maximum IOPS, so you can set that a, a little bit higher than you know, the OS disk. And the, the you know the log files, uh, uh, log virtual disk could be entirely different policy as well. You can set this up all through the vSphere client, uh, create the virtual machine. Um, these policies are picked up automatically by the underlying storage. You can start up the VM and it will have those QoS policies right away. And 
Um, this is certainly true of the, the VM that you create as well, where you assign the number of cores that you need, the amount of memory you need, the amount of net network connectivity you need. Again, this is a single admin sitting at a single console being able to create a VM start to finish uh, without ever needing to touch any other piece of equipment. So that's that's an example of you know, the, the idea that you can, you're, you're down to one admin that can do this. And if you go back five years or, or longer, it would have taken a handful of admins to actually make this happen, where you would have at least needed to talk to a storage admin to get them to carve out a line that had certain properties that you needed and make sure that uh, possibly talk to your network admin and make sure that your uh, your ESX host or your, your virtualization host actually had the connections that it needed into the network um, with, with software-defined networking available from uh, both OpenStack and VMware. You can actually define an awful lot of this just right from the virtualization level. So that's where this whole concept of not needing as many specialized storage admins comes from. So uh, as far as VVols are concerned, what sort of support do we offer here at NetApp for VVols? So uh, for, for two of our product lines, for the, the ONTAP product line, uh, we have VVols 1.0 support now, and I know that there's VVols 2.0 support being worked on currently. I don't know if there's an exact release schedule available, but uh, it's available today uh, on ONTAP 9.2 uh, for... Um, for the NetApp SolidFire product, we actually have VVols 1.0 support as well. That came out uh, in our flooring release, uh, Element OS 9, that was released last December. So it is fully available today as well. Uh, there's actually customers out there using it. Um, and, uh, you know, I talk to them from time to time, and they're, they're fairly happy with it. Um, United States Senate Federal Credit Union uh, is uh, a happy VVols customer today. Okay. Uh, what about VVOLS 2.0 on SolidFire? Is that available? Uh, 2.0 is not available. Uh, it's, again, in the works. And, again, I can't give any schedule of, of when it might be releasing, but uh, it, we definitely have our eye on it. And uh, it, it's undoubtedly going to be out at some point. Okay. So as far as VVOLS are concerned, I mean, there's been sort of a nebulous of, uh, you know, understanding how much interest there is out there. Have you seen an uptick in the interest? I mean, are we getting a lot of customer questions on it? Um, how many people we're are actually interested? A lot of customer, we're certainly getting a lot of customer questions on it. Sorry about that. Sorry for interrupting you. Uh, but it, it's um, we're getting a lot of customer questions on it. We're getting a lot of customers who are trying things out. Uh, we are certainly getting an awful lot of customers who are asking questions. What about VVOLS 2.0? Um, what VVOLS 2.0 gives us is... Uh, the, the ability to do replication with VVOLS. And that's the, really a key feature for an awful lot, awful lot of customers out there. And let me make, let me clarify that a little bit. It gives us the ability to do array-based replication with VVOLS. Uh, just, just for entire clarity, uh, VMware replication with VVOLS is available with VVOLS 1.0 out of the box. And that works with SolidFire, that works with NetApp, uh, it's just a, a core feature. The ability to actually offload the replication to the the storage system is uh, what VVOLS 2.0 would bring us, and 
uh, that it's one of a key fe- one of the key features to actually be able to uh, you know make best use of defaults. Okay, so I mean, I mean, I know you've explained VVOLs to people, and you know, in this podcast, and you know, you've kind of given an in-depth description. But what is the kind of elevator pitch of when somebody says, "Why would I want to use VVOLs in the first place?" I mean, can we just kind of give a condensed, you know, answer to the why question? Uh, a, a condensed answer would be uh, to get the storage admin out of the mix of being involved in, in setting up storage for your uh, VMware environment. Um, the, the whole idea is that you can actually uh, do granular uh, QoS from the, the NetApp SolidFire perspective. It's the guaranteed QoS portion of it. From any from the ONTAP perspective, it would be the other data capabilities that are available. Um, you know what type of uh, capabilities your volume group has, uh, deduplication, compression, encryption, that type of thing. But you the ability to actually have granular control of each VM or each virtual disk and be able to say this VM or this virtual disk has these capabilities associated with the underlying storage cap- um, available to it. Um, the, ability, the, the idea that you don't actually need to lump them together inside a VMware data store and that entire data store has those capabilities. Um, the ability to do uh, rapid deployment the ability to do snapshotting at an individual level, uh, the, and this is a terrible elevator pitch, but the, the other piece is the, the integration with storage policy-based management, the ability to actually do everything from your, your vSphere client. Okay. Uh, so, so, maybe Josh can actually polish that into an elevator-sized pitch. I was just assuming you were going to like the 12th floor. I thought it was fine. <laughs> no, I, I think the I think the core thing though is it it is about making that transition to policy based distribution uh, and consumption, uh, being able to look at the highest percentage of workload requirements, setting policies that can meet those requirements, and removing the administrator from from being involved with processing those transactions. I think that is the a core driver. Uh, with virtual volumes, uh, because as we stated earlier in this podcast, you know what what we're seeing more and more those those needs are becoming more and more dynamic, and more frequently we're running into an organization or a group will put forth what their requirements are in their request, and and in in many cases by the time it's delivered, those needs and requirements may and often have changed, which means that you wait to get something. And then your needs change because the applications are starting to change more quickly, uh, and you know, the what's released and what's invest, invested in is more quickly, changes more quickly. Okay, so VVOLs, a very interesting topic of discussion here. Uh, I know that we're going to be seeing more and more of VVOLs out there in the wild, but also at VMworld, which is coming up soon. Uh, Andy and Josh, are you going to be at VMworld? Uh, Andy first. Yeah, I I will definitely be at VMworld. I will be probably at the, the NetApp booth a fair amount of time if people actually want to talk about VVOLs or anything else VMware integration related with NetApp. Uh, right now, there's hope around a VVOLs panel se- uh, session getting put together, and if that does actually get to put, that, put together, I will be on it. But otherwise, uh, I'm easy to find. So do you have any unique identifying features where people could find you if they needed to? Uh <laughs> no, not at all. I'm I'm about as average as they come. 
So, so no extraordinary height or length of, of mullet. Uh, no, not that I've heard of. Okay. No, it, it's uh, you know, it, um, I'm like six foot six, so I don't think that I'm that terribly tall, and uh, you know, the the hair is only three or four inches below the shoulder, so it, it's not that unusually long. Okay. Excellent. All right, and uh, Josh, what about yourself? Uh, I am not six foot six. <laughs> no, you are not. Uh, I'm, I'm still to be determined on VMworld. I, I have a pretty strong suspicion that I'll be there, but I'm still sorting out what, what I'm going to be doing uh, if I attend. I've uh, got some strong thoughts around uh, you know, helping facilitate what I do, getting people connected to what we're doing with code, uh, and answering questions around uh, you know, th- those capabilities. And then, of course, you know, trying to hang out with the with the V Brownback guys and the uh, VMware Code team, and I do know that both of you, as well as myself, will all be at Insight, which is just around the corner. On you know, so that be be ready for that. Absolutely, that's right. I'm uh, I'm I'm running the Code On bar that's being powered by the pub. So all the things that we've kind of talked about, they actually are going to be rolled into one space. So if people who are listening or attending Insight, highly recommend you come by and check out the Code On bar. Can you give me code your on, Josh? Can you can you give me your best Steven Tyler code on impersonation? Uh, no, but to to Andy's uh, you know statement there, well, we can give you our um, Wayne's World code on Andy. Steven on Josh. Steven Tyler would have been so much better, like a nice scream. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing it today. I'll save it for insight. All right. All right. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontechpodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tech podcast team, as well as Josh Atwell and Andy Banta, thanks for listening. So, uh, it sounded and, like the other people had to go as well. They did. They uh, they all left us here alone. Uh, so well, it yeah. sounded like they had to go so they could go. Yes. <laughs> yes. When you gotta go, you gotta go. You gotta go. You can't ignore human biology. As, this is just yeah. Me. yeah. For a little while. Good. Oh, yeah. Then you won't have any friends. That's right. <laughs>